Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends, the history show where we talk about the history of the Six Nations of the Iroquois and how they influenced the world. This week we are pleased to be joined by Peter Jesser Smith, a journalist and researcher extraordinaire. So welcome <laughs> to the show, Pete. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's uh, been a, actually a dream of mine to be on here. Well, I'm I'm glad that we can continue to make little boys' dreams come true. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we've started all the way from the history of the indigenous people of North America, from prehistory, and now we've worked up into the post-Civil War era. But this week, we're going to jump back in time about 200 or so years to talk about somebody we wanted to talk about back in the day, but felt like we really didn't know that much about her, because it's really hard to find stuff about her, because... The details are very muddled, yes. and uh, anything you say about this person can sometimes be a lightning rod against different groups of people. Very much so. Uh, even how to pronounce her name. So <laughs> who is the lovely young woman we'll be discussing today? We're going to be talking about St. Kateri Tekakwitha. That's that's how her name would be in English. Mohawk is Kadari Tekakwitha. There's a couple different meanings or, or renderings for her name. Mohawk scholar Darren Bonaparte says that she puts things in their place. So she's an organized person. <laughs> One of her nicknames is a Lily of the Mohawk, uh, but Darren Bonaparte describes her as a lily among thorns, and that kind of stings a little bit. No pun intended. With all these names, you know, you have Mohawk parents who are picking up on different things about their children, trying to understand what is, what is that name? You know, what is it that is going to tell us something about this person? Can we play spoilers and just say that she's a canonized Catholic saint? Sure. Jump, yes. to, jump to the end and then we'll work our way back. And if I recall, there's not too many Iroquoian people that are canonized. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's, that is very true. So uh, actually, St. Catherine Tekagwitha is the only indigenous woman who is a canonized saint of the Catholic Church right now. And uh, she's the second indigenous person to be canonized. The first one is Saint uh, Juan Diego uh, Cuetzloan, who is from modern-day Mexico. Now we've jumped to the end. Let's jump back to the beginning. Sure. I guess before we get into why she's so important, Terry can be a very sensitive point for some people, in large part probably due to how she's portrayed. I think a lot of Catholic storytellers just paint her as someone who's in opposition to her people and her culture, which is not really how she lived her life. She was a fully Mohawk woman living firmly in the context of her culture and times. We've got her name. Where was she born? So St. Kateri is born in 1656 at the Mohawk town of Osernanon, which is near present-day Orisville, New York, uh, right there in the, the Mohawk Valley. Uh, she died 24 years later at uh, Kahnawaga, which uh, was established as uh, a praying village of Haudenosaunee Catholics, and uh, she died in 1680. Peter, what is the political climate going on at this time? We've still got Dutch traders, we've got the French, we've got the English going on, and, yeah. and this, the five nations are stuck in the middle. I know that there's been Jesuit missionaries that have started to make inroads there, and uh, a lot of them ended up killed. Some of them <laughs> had different works. So where does yeah. she fit? So right in the middle of it, really in order to understand St. Catherine Tekakwitha, I really do encourage 
everybody to listen to those beginning episodes of Iroquois History and Legends because that gives important cultural and social context to who she is as a Haudenosaunee Mohawk woman living in a time of enormous stress for the uh, the five nations in particular the Mohawk you know the Mohawk are having to deal with uh with with the French and the French being allied with a number of their enemies, also balancing that against other interests. They've got the Dutch there as well. They've got to think about. There's a lot that's going on here, and there's a lot of responsibility. You know, a lot of the uh, the uh, the headmen, the clan mothers are having to deal with at the same time. But the French have been a big, huge, huge problem. Cattery's born in 1656. We think that her mother was an Algonquin Catholic. It's not quite clear what happens. Maybe she was captured and adopted. She was a Catholic convert before this, before she was married and then before Cattery was born. Correct. So so under our theory or our understanding about what would have been typical is that it was no doubt probably through her mother that Cowdery would have had a first encounter with Catholicism through an indigenous frame, point of view. Because one of the strengths that we don't appreciate about indigenous Catholics, particularly at this time, is that the strength of oral culture, you are able to pass on prayers and words and whole cosmologies through the power of language. And no doubt she would have been translating things that she had learned as an Algonquin Catholic in through Mohawk language. So St. Cattery's father, we believe, was a chief or headman of the Turtle Clan. You know, and I think it's significant. The Turtle Clan was the clan that was trying to protect Isaac Jokes. We covered that in our Black Robes episode, Absol- talking about how some of the clans really wanted to get rid of these troublesome guys because they thought that they were practicing witchcraft or that they were, mm-hmm. you know, the fifth column for the French. And yes. Um, yes, the Turtle Clan did not want to see any harm come to him and tried to protect him. Correct. So there, there's already, in a certain sense, this kind of familial re- relationship. Well, anyway, so there's a, there's a period of peace that's going on. I think we can theorize that this probably would have been a policy that Cattery's father would have been pursuing. This is a period of trying to figure things out. Unfortunately, he dies. He, St. Cattery's mother, and uh, one of her little brothers dies in a smallpox plague that leaves her eyesight damaged. And I believe she was permanently disfigured, as many people at this time, Correct. Even, even George Washington, was said to be pockmarked in his face. And um, I believe that she she had a very severe case of it. Yes, and, and that's actually kind of, I believe, plays into a lot of her behaviors and choices because she can't see very well, in theory. That becomes part of her story, is that she's been afflicted with this. We know then she's adopted by her uh, her uncle and her aunt. Her uncle is a, a brother to her father. And Peter, about how old was she when, when her... Her family perished. It's about four years old. Wow, so really young. Really young. That's her adopted father. I mean, this this is standard Mohawk f- familial practice, standard with Haudenosaunee families. The child that is adopted is considered no different from your own biological children. That is your child. You love that child. What ends up happening, though, is her adopted father takes more of a hard line towards the French. He's likely reflecting a certain current that's going on here. So there's conflict with the French, and as we know from the history, the French come down and they... Burn a lot of stuff. Well, they burn a lot of stuff. So By know. a lot of stuff, we mean their towns. <laughs> yes, precisely, you know, their towns. So you literally have the French who are coming to wipe out a future Roman Catholic saint and her people. Naturally, this is very traumatic, and if there are Mohawk leaders such as her adopted father who did not have 
uh, fuzzy feelings towards the French. We What's can... his problem? I mean... Exactly. Yeah. Like, why like, not embrace the faith of the people that are trying to systematically annihilate you? See, this is, uh, this is really the... Uh, it really does introduce quite a complication. As we've seen in the podcast, don't seem to be really appreciative of. And, I mean, if you go back and listen to the episode, it's, it's clear that these French leaders and traders were very upset at the Jesuits for what they were doing because they wanted Correct. to get rid of them and the Jesuits wanted to make them equal. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's, there's always, with the Jesuits, there's always some complication in that the French are their meal ticket. I mean, they're, with the Jesuits, the complicated thing is that there's certain amount of playing ball that you have to do with these empires. But you're really trying both to do what you think is spreading the message of Jesus Christ and at the same time trying to keep more of a distance or arm's length away from the French or the Spanish or whatever government it is. Eventually, this will really bite the Jesuits. You, you can't have one foot on the ground and one foot in a canoe with a rushing river going on. You're going to get wet. Co- correct. And then eventually this, this will lead to the suppression of the Jesuits. The Jesuits are backing indigenous people in Brazil. Not to get too far afield, but that starts to have a clampdown all across North America. Watch the movie The Mission, <laughs> if you dare. It, it, it'll give you a, a sense of... Yeah. Of, of the problem. Anyway, so we have a French invasion that nearly kills St. Catteritikaguitha. So Catteri's growing up in this, but like you said, her mother's dead at four, so where is she getting the sexual Catholic faith from? There's got to be someone else that influences her later in life. Correct. So she's growing up as good, dutiful Mohawk. What ends up happening is the Jesuits end up coming back as part of a peace treaty. And one of the things to realize that it happened by now in the in the Five Nations is that the Five Nations actually already had different communities of indigenous Catholics already in their different nations. Yes, the Seneca, especially outside of modern uh, East Bloomfield, had an entire village of Hurons that had been assimilated, relocated. Correct. It was a Christian community right there. And, and this was all, all through the Five Nations. And what, one of the things that they do is they eventually integrate into these societies, but they're also having these conversations. And one of the things that ends up happening is that, so the Jesuits come back and discover that there's already actually Christian communities here. They're not starting from zero. But Peter, how can that be without the, the great Jesuits to come and preach to them? Well, isn't that a funny thing? <laughs> <laughs> see, see, that's a, that's a part of what's, what's wrong about how we understand a lot of these stories. Because we think, ah, there was the great Jesuit and he came and all the native people looked up and said, ah... Yes, I I did not know all this before. Why, thank you, great Jesuit. That's a way that it gets told in a lot of the 20th century stories. And, and there's a lot of political agendas, and we can talk about that later going on. You peel that back, you go back to the original sources and things like that, you start to get into a much more human story. A lot of the conversions or the evangelization, as we, we call the spreading of the gospel, happens from native person to native person. They're the real people spreading Catholicism and extending it. When a number of devout indigenous people feel that the message that they're hearing is a revelation of the creator about himself, that's when it clicks and Christianity for them becomes not a break with their tradition, 
but rather a fulfillment. And that's the important thing to understand about St. St. Cattery. We think of, oh, it's Catholicism versus her Mohawk identity. That's not how she would be approaching it. It would be, I am a Mohawk person, I am in a Mohawk culture, this is the way I think, breathe, act. To understand Catholicism, she's understanding it through that particular lens, that particular understanding. So they're not in conflict with each other. They both come together. And people disagree, of course. I mean, you know, there's, there are other good Mohawk people that said, I can't come to that conclusion. But I think it's what is important for understanding Sincatery is to get into the mindset of the people of the time and be in their shoes rather than try to put these things in conflict. Uh, I think this notion of, well, I've got to reject my culture and my people is just something that is something that us moderns today do. But I don't think that's how she would have been really, truly looking at it. You've got these Jesuit priests come down, and you see right at the outset, one of the realities is that part of these Jesuit priests are kind of terrified. They don't want to end up martyrs like Isaac Jogues, Isaac Jogues and John Rubeboeuf. I mean, they're, they're willing to be there. But at the same time, you know, everybody loves reading about being a hero, but one doesn't exactly necessarily relish the thought. So the first Jesuits come there and they basically said, well, here we here proclaim Jesus, but if you do anything to us, uh, the French will come down and bad things will happen. So there's, so there's not a lot of trust on either side. Yeah, I mean, trust has to be rebuilt and the Jesuits are trying to manage a totally new... I mean, if you think about it, these guys have come from a different culture, different expectations, not only thrown into North America which they signed up for, but are also now in a different country, the Mohawk Nation, that they've been terrified about. And in a certain sense, a lot of the things that the French do are from a terrible point of insecurity and weakness. Even when they start getting the upper hand, they're still fearful. Uh, and then you've got it from the Mohawk perspective. It's <laughs> like, these guys bring the plague. We yes. think they might be doing witchcraft on the side. We don't know if they're tattling on the French to us or they're spying out the land. Correct. Or... I mean, there's all, all these all these things going on. And then they've got their own enemies on the back door, the Mohicans to deal with, who might be allying with the Dutch. I mean, who knows? There's a lot of things that are going on here. So you have these Mohawk leaders who basically say, well, all right, well, we have to establish this peace and this relationship. So we're going to kind of mediate the situation a bit. What eventually ends up happening at the same time is that these different Catholic villages of indigenous people, uh, and particularly Haudenosaunee, start being formed along the St. Lawrence River, which is part of the traditional boundary of the Mohawk Nation. In part, there's Jesuits up there that are part of this project and have encouraged it, especially because they say, well, if there's a buffer of our Haudenosaunee Catholics in front of Montreal, then that, that can help, you know, maybe give the French in Montreal a bit of peace. There's part of that. And they start encouraging people to move there as well, correct? Well, yes, but this is also where things get complicated. One of the things that ends up happening is that Kahnawaga, Kahnawaga, and it has different sites that move, but we're just going to call it Kahnawaga. It's established by a Catholic couple from the United Nation, very on fire for their faith. They say, well, wait a minute. What if we built a village based on you know our culture, Haudenosaunee culture. It's basically going to be a Catholic village from the Jesuit point of view. This is great because I don't have to go into the five nations where I'm kind of afraid. Over here, I'm not too far from Montreal. It's a little 
seems a bit more convenient. So what ends up happening is the Oneida and the Mohawk have very close relations. A number of renowned Oneida headmen become Catholic. They start basically having these conversations and going down into the Mohawk heartland. A number of those people who are already Catholics say, well, hey, we can go up there. I think what you have at the time is an internal division about what are we going to do. I think the argument that some people were making was, well, we can go up here and live our faith more intentionally, but we'll also be right next to the French. So we can keep an eye on them. Also, uh, the place that's the St. Lawrence River, that's a major trade artery. Like you can kind of see in the conversation that there's leaders saying, hey, there are advantages here. The problem is, is that you only have so many people. And for people like St. Cattery's adopted father, who unfortunately gets turned into a villain in how the Jesuit accounts are. And I I think we gotta, we, we just have to recognize their storytelling for a French audience that's overseas and probably trying to raise a little money for their enterprise. But let's just set, set that aside. Read between the lines and look at the cultural context. We can see someone like St. Cattery's adopted father saying, this is not good. Their villages are being depopulated. Correct. He said, well, what's the point of establishing a presence up here in the far north when we can barely hold on to our own territory here? And that's kind of borne out because St. Cattery ends up being subjected to a siege by the Mohicans. Anyway, they, they fight it off. So the, the point is, is that that concern is real. So there's, there's that kind of internal tension and disagreement. Well, one of the things that ends up happening is that a number of people who are Mohawks start coming down and they give these speeches about their own faith in Jesus Christ and the life that they have changed and lived. And then they said, and if you want to join us up here at Kahnawaga, you are welcome to do so. And did we mention there's a far less chance of you being raided by Mohicans and it's <laughs> the French and uh, I don't know. Correct. So a number of people actually start moving up there, including one of St. Cattery's own sisters. She and her husband say, yeah, sounds good to me. St. Cattery doesn't do this right away though. She's not really quite convinced yet that this is something that she wants to do. So Kahnawaga is growing, and I mean, it really does have its its own amazing story. There are all these very amazing, you know, faith-filled, you know, dedicated people who were, you know, who were there. And it, it really was founded and built on Haudenosaunee model, you know, you know clan mothers electing the headmen, the leaders. Uh, they even had elections for the, um, the head catechist. Um, it, it really is. So they, it had French influence, but it was not a carbon copy French town. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and then and actually this is, this is one of the, one of the reasons that the Jesuits were totally on board with it is because the Jesuits realized that you can't take away a person's culture and have them expect that they're still going to be a, a Christian. It's, you know, have you heard of residential schools? Yeah, exactly. Different topic. Sorry. Well, no. I mean, this is we can we can we can talk about that. But the residential schools represent a huge betrayal and a huge break from this original understanding and this original relationship that is being formed and lived out in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting ahead of ourselves by a few hundred years. So at the time, it's very uh, for anthropologists would call it contextual. 
Correct. I mean, all this stuff is all this stuff is contextual because if you don't understand the context, you're not going to understand what you're reading or who Saint Cattery is or any of these things, any of the relationships that are going on. So Saint Cattery is growing up here, you know, and the Jesuits encounter her. Wow, she's so good and she's amazing. Must be due to her mother's influence. It's more likely her due mother to... that died when she was four. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it's like no, she's a really. She's really just a very dedicated, hardworking, good Mohawk girl. I mean, uncles, aunts, everybody raised her right. That's what they're seeing. Catter shows that she's a bit of a different girl. And one of the things that ends up alarming the fam is that she doesn't want to get married, which is a really big deal. Especially when you're dealing with constant epidemics, people are dying, you need to repopulate your people so you don't die out. Correct. Also, dad is the dad is a headman of the village. So that's a big deal. So there's a political aspect behind it, an internal political aspect. Cor- correct. You know, I mean, he has responsibility. He's supposed to be demonstrating it. How is it that your daughter is seemingly forsaking one of the fundamental responsibilities that she owes to this village? There's so much family dynamics and things that are going on i think parents today can resonate with i don't understand what my my kid is doing she's hanging out with this really strange crowd (laughs) correct i mean she's you know she's embracing these new strange beliefs i don't understand it they're like well maybe this is a phase she'll she'll grow out of it and and she doesn't they arrange another nice young man to go meet their daughter and uh Cattery sometimes is a little oblivious about the things that are going on until she understands what's going on. So she understands, with this one situation, they're trying to get me married to this guy. She picks up on the rituals that are taking place, and she basically just books it out of there. Do you know how old she was at this time? I think about 14. Okay. Which, I mean, to us, that sounds crazy, but in any culture at this time, even even if you were French or English, that would not be terribly uncommon. Correct. So this is becoming a bit more bit more alarming and concerning. Catter is looking up to various people. One of them is a clan mother who loses her title and her position. She, her, that's, that's very rare. I mean, the it, men could be stripped, but, but the women, it, it's almost unheard of. It's extremely rare. I mean, and that, that gives us an important clue about how volatile this sort of issue was. Because um, this woman was named uh, Maurice uh, Cioentes. Yes, she was removed from her hereditary position. And she said, all right, fine. Well, I'm leaving anyway. There's a couple other people from Kahnawaga that give these speeches. Again, they're people with credentials. You know, they're either war heroes. They've proven themselves in various ways so that they just can't simply be dismissed. So she decides that she is going to convert. And she ends up baptized in 1676 on Easter Sunday. So she takes the name Cattery, which means Catherine. What's the fallout from that? Well, the the fallout of that is that she starts to live in a particularly different way. That includes other things that alarm her family, which is not working on Sundays or important church days, and then taking off time to go to church. Again, the problem is, is if you're in this culture society where you just don't have the luxury because... Yeah, you're an agrarian society, so you're, you got a farm. Exactly. And everybody has to work and there's less people. And it's not that they would work every day, but it's it's a nice day out today. So we're going to go 
hoe and plant some corn or we're going to go harvest and they'll take a break on a day that's raining. Correct. But what Kateri is doing is very regular. You know, if she was anybody else, it probably would have been annoying and people would have given her a hard time about it. But the problem again is that she is the daughter of a Mohawk chief of the Turtle Clan. This is a big deal. It was probably a big deal when her sister migrated to Kahnawaka. Not only is she not working as they expect, she's also not getting married. It doesn't look like anything's getting better. It looks like something's getting worse. If we don't think of this as a very tight-knit, close family drama, we can't really understand how can you love somebody and do these like crazy things at the same time. Unfortunately, she starts to get subjected to a number of coercive tactics to try to bring her back in line. Peer pressure. And it just gets more extreme the more it doesn't work. So name-calling, shunning, harsh labor. If we step back and think about it, it's really designed to scare you straight. There's more to it than that also, because you have to understand that different cultures approach things in different ways. We live in a very individualistic society. Mm -hmm. But in cultures currently in the world that are very community-based and oriented, that's how the society keeps its cohesion. Mm -hmm. America is individualistic and law and order. Everybody's allowed to do something, but if you break the law, then we come down on you. There, it's you keep everybody going along to conform with everyone else for the good of the group. Yes. So that's what's going on, and it, it gets progressively worse because at, at some point people start saying well you're betraying the country or and you're not truly mohawk that's an extreme tactic but that hurts but they love her and that's the way that they're going about doing it correct that's that's what people today miss when they don't understand the context of what is going on and that sometimes people in our families do really hurtful things not because they hate us but because they love us and are in pain at our decisions and are responding in not a good way. And it looks like one of her aunts makes up some lie that Kateri has a thing for her husband or something like that. It's a complete fabrication, but I think she's trying to basically pull a fast one on this particular Jesuit by saying, you know, Kateri's not the girl that you think she is. Trying to prevent them from taking her niece up to Kahnawaga. One of the things that ends up happening is there's a renowned Oneida Catholic chief, I think his name is Geron Yaga, um, or hot powder. And he gives another one of these speeches, come up to Kanawaga. And so she then decides that she is going to set out with Garang Yaga, but her father is away with a Mohawk delegation to meet with the Dutch. So she leaves town without telling him. Correct. <laughs> and how old is she about this time? 21. Okay. This is within about a year after her conversion, uh, 1677. Her adopted father is on his way back, and somebody from the village says, hey, she's she's on her way north. They knew exactly where she was going. And by this time, she's a grown woman. So she moves to the village. Yeah. You told me she dies at 24. You say she's 21 now. So we got three <laughs> years to go. I'd like to believe everything is um, peaches and cream when she gets there. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so when she gets there, it's very exciting because she says, because a lot of it's very familiar. There's so many things of Haudenosaunee culture. She knows a lot of the people there. She like, knows a lot of people there. Her sister's there. Her sister's there. There's family there. She comes under the wing of, uh, of uh, another Mohawk Catholic woman who knew, also knew her mother. Um, and that woman, again, becomes kind of adoptive mother, you know, mentor to, to her. 
Um, her name is Anastasia. She would have come to the village. At the entrance, there would have been two trees. It would have resonated with the symbolic of the, the Haudenosaunee great, um, you know, the, that tree of peace. You know, but here, symbolically, you're not burying the hatchet. You're burying what they felt were their two big ticket items, which was alcoholism, drunkenness, or sexual sins from your past life. This How is do our... you bury those, Peter? <laughs> I don't really know. But I, like... I, this is more symbolic, I believe. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's okay, very, right. very symbolic. I don't know how you do that physically. <laughs> Nor do I want to. No, no. Like, no, no, no. I just... <laughs> so Kahnawaga had elected chiefs for peace, war, same as other Haudenosaunee villages, and as I mentioned before, one for the catechism. I've never done catechism before. So I'm not, I have an idea of what it is, but basically it's like a course, right? Like a teaching course or uh, correct uh, me if I'm wrong. No, actually I would probably say it's, it's more like, it would be more like a, a lay pastor. The, the Jesuits had roles for laity that were a lot more robust than what you'd see today. And by laity, you mean a common person that's not an ordained minister. Yes, correct. Anybody who's not, any, any person who's part of the church that is not a member of the clergy. And these catechists had a far more important role. You know, a Mohawk catechist would teach about the faith in the Mohawk language. But but what about Latin, like what Jesus spoke? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> just, yes, Latin that Jesus spoke. Um, Jesus didn't speak Latin, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> Correct. That's neither here nor there. Uh, no, so actually this is one of the things, that the Jesuits are really ahead of their time and innovators. But one of the things that the Jesuits did was they, they had the catechist preach at the religious services. One of the things that the Jesuits did was the Jesuits made it so that, yes, they had to pray the Mass in Latin. But the people sang all these various parts in the Mohawk language. And they developed this style of music that's sometimes termed Mohawk Gregorian. But if you go up to Ganawaga today at the St. Francis Xavier Mission Church, you will hear it. It's, it's, enormously, it's enormously beautiful. It's their art form. One of the things that they would also do, the lay catechists would do, is lay catechists would uh, lead a form of what we call the Liturgy of the Hours. It's basically praying psalms and reading the Bible and doing it together. And you have some opening prayers and some closing prayers. To me, that just sounds monotonous and boring. But to someone from an oral culture, that actually sounds right up their alley. Absolutely. And, and some things, sometimes the Jesuits, they didn't quite disentangle what was actually... Yeah, obviously they were not doing it perfectly. They were not doing it perfectly. Not even close. <laughs> but what they were doing was... Innovative and much, much further than... Centuries ahead. Yeah. They, they claimed that they had this permission from the Pope to do this sort of thing, but that somehow they lost the original document. Well, the Vatican was asked, <laughs> I think fairly recently... Uh, do you know if this uh, this sort of thing exists? And they said, well, gosh, we can't seem to find it either. So I guess it was us lost somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's that's what they were doing. Kateri, she comes there and she joins this um, very dedicated prayer group, which is kind of the spiritual elite, dedicated to praying for the mission and uh, praying for their, their, their people. She's doing these prayers, working in the fields, gathering wood, going on hunting expeditions at first. And she's able to go to, to Mass. That's kind of the, the basic kind of devotional life and things that are going on. She makes new friends, but it doesn't end up all very smoothly. Because life isn't smooth. Cattery has a whole group of women around her called Cattery's Band, but she develops a very um, extreme... And by ascetical, you 
does that mean like withdrawing, living very simply, or what does that mean? She is living very simply. She's not dressing herself ornately. She's and she also develops these some of these really extreme penances. It goes to an extreme. Maybe it's from the time, but there's a lot of emphasis on punish the body in order to stop from sinning or something like that. And the Jesuits... Are they encouraging this? Well, they introduce it. Yeah. <laughs> they introduce it. It's something called a flagellum. Which is where we get the term flagellation. Correct. But it was kind of one of these things where you take it and you just kind of... Beat yourself with it. Yeah. Not too bad. I know that sounds ridiculous. So she starts going to some extremes. The interesting thing is that she's introduced to this concept, but it seems to give her permission in her mind to do it in not their way. She wants to do it her way. Mm. She uses thorns. She uses hot coals. But it's it in a certain sense, it seems to be almost kind of it's like self. It's like what they would do to political or war prisoners. That kind of uh, well, torture yes. Almost. Some people have presented a theory that maybe this was an ascetical practice that Mohawk warriors would use to discipline their bodies, so that if they were captured, they could endure it. They could endure it, and they could demonstrate their superior arenda. Mm. So she embraces this ascetical practice, but from what the Jesuits say, it seems to be okay. So I'm going to take that to the max mm. after a large prayer meeting with everybody. This is after Catteries died. After a large, large prayer meeting together, they said, you know what? I just, we just had a new revelation. God does not want these extreme penances. You must stop. And they do. But especially because it's bad for your health, as we'll, we'll see. Anyway, so, um, well, the marriage thing happens again. Who's so, pushing her now? Oh, this is now her new adopted mother, Anastasia. So same, same deal. She, same she, deal. She says, I have a nice, nice Catholic young man. But she's just not interested. She is furious. Do you think that that was her thing? Or do you think the Jesuits had put a bug in her ear that like, you know, people that are more holy live a life of celibacy? Or do you think it was really her personal choice? I think it was her personal choice. I think she was trying to figure out how she was going to articulate that because it's something that starts before her Christian conversion or experience. Mm -hmm. But the idea of marriage, she consistently says, I want nothing to do with it. She puts it in matrimonial terms. She will take Jesus as her spouse. Oh, so she's friend-zoned every guy in the village. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, it's that beautiful girl. Oh, she's going to become a nun. Oh, Okay. Does she become a nun? Uh, No. She wants to found her own version of that with her female friend group, Cattery's Band, but she doesn't. And the Jesuits basically say, I don't think that would be a very good idea. I think the other thing, too, whether the Jesuits admit it or not, they are concerned about population. If she starts a trend and even even a half dozen women decide to swear off, it would really affect things. Cattery dies in 1680. Now, not too many 24-year-olds drop dead of natural oh. causes. What leads this on? What, what happens? Well, I mean, one of the things that ends up happening is Cattery is performing these extreme penances, and she's hiding it from the Jesuits, which indicates to us that the Jesuits are not on board with this, and they are concerned. But she basically keeps hiding it. Well, finally she goes too far. I mean, I think it's likely she gets an infection. So she's just covering it up with her clothes. Yeah. I think what we can see is that there is this enormous 
anxiety or need or whatever that she has identified. Uh, eventually, it's her friend, uh, Wari Therese. She rats her out to the Jesuits who basically say, you were forbidden from doing this ever again. But unfortunately, by that time, it's, it's too late. So basically, her, her health had deteriorated or weakened too much. She ends up dying on in Holy Week. When she does, reported that her face becomes healed of the smallpox scars and she becomes very, very beautiful to look on. She becomes very quickly recognized as having been a saint in their midst. One of the things that the Jesuits do when they realize she is dying, basically comes up and says, so you didn't sleep with anybody ever, right? And she basically says, no. I think they felt they had a saint on their hands or a deathbed statement is considered far more authoritative than something you say, you know, you own life. Because the, the idea is that, well, you're dying. So they, they wanted to make sure that there really was no tomfoolery because if they put her out there as someone to obtain to in... Uh, Correct. Like, well, no, she was a slut. Because the thing that you... I mean, the thing that we have to consider, I think they felt something was very special with what they were experiencing and what they were seeing happening among the Christians there in these missions and they were seeing a way of life and living that they wished people back home in Europe or even people just across the river in Montreal you're in saying Quebec, that they took their Christian faith to a very personal level and they, they, they were devout and it was real to them versus French people by and large it was just a cultural motion that they went through Cattery took things to extreme, and the Jesuits were trying to dissuade her from doing those things, but her heart was still devout towards that faith. That's the important thing to realize. When the Catholic Church says some person is a saint... Yeah, it what, does, what, how do you define that exactly? Because sure. I picture saint, I just picture seeing some guy with an icon with some gold disc behind his head, <laughs> yeah. wearing some colorful clothes where do they get those gold plates nailed to the heads you know ultimately when the catholic church says you know somebody is a saint what it's saying is that this person truly loved jesus with their whole heart and soul lived in a way that reflected jesus i guess there's this stereotype that uh, you call someone a saint means you're perfect you know practically sinless what you've just told me about her is this woman has serious issues, Peter. I mean, <laughs> se- um, yeah. self-harm. You're telling me saints are normal people too? <laughs> That's the important thing. Is like saints, saints are normal. They have their own struggles. They have their own different family backgrounds. They've got their own issues that they're, they're dealing with. Very rarely, and by rarely I mean never, are saints the people living in stained glass windows or fancy paintings with the pious faces that we typically see. They're people who are really struggling and trying to love other people like Jesus asked them to, and they're making mistakes along the way. That's why it's important to look at what is the intention here? Because I would never, never want to imitate any of the penitential practices that St. Cattery did. I would probably be arrested and committed. Everybody, including my church, would wonder, what the heck happened? But I live in the 21st century. I'm in a different culture, in a different time, with far different considerations. And Cattery lived in the 17th century, coming from a Mohawk culture, and had family back home that she loved very, very much. Also had an awareness that I feel like I could be a martyr. It's not, it's possible, and I've got to prepare. And this is a cultural matrix she could fall back on. 
because I want to demonstrate maybe my own greatness of spirit for Jesus Christ. And I want my family to be be happy too. I mean, you, you got to think that this is a person who has seen war. She has seen death. She has seen famine. She's seen it caused against her own people. She recognizes relationships are not great. I think she's trying to go on a supernatural plane to, to resolve that. But that's the, that's the thing, is that even saints make mistakes. But that's the important thing about what a saint is, the love that they have in their heart and that they've, they've shown to others. She cared for other people. She took care of those who were less fortunate. She put others before herself. Some of the more dramatic aspects of her life get a lot of attention because they're, they're dramatic. The sufferings that she, she performed on herself do contribute to her death. Her death. I mean, we can't. Let's yeah. not deny that. Yeah, it, was, I, it just seems like that would not be the person yeah. I'd be holding up as my standard bearer. So no, but it's it's the love that she has and what she putting other people first and taking care of them. That's really ultimately at the end of the day why she made an impression. Mm-hmm. Hey Pete, so how do you become a saint anyway? Caleb, have you been here the whole time? Yeah, why? Oh, oh, nothing. You just have seemed really quiet in this interview, but that's fine. Go ahead, Pete. <laughs> he was meditating. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, I definitely have been here the whole time and did not just, you know, so happen to walk in and find you guys recording this podcast. <laughs> so uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> Yeah, St. Catterick with I could uh, start all over, but... Uh... <laughs> um, so, let's see. So, she becomes renowned as a saint among the, the Mohawk people. Uh, Mohawk Catholics actually carry her devotion west uh, across uh, both uh, Canada and, uh, and the United States. Basically, spread Catholicism. Again, not the priests first. They were first, Mohawk Catholics. So that happens throughout the uh, 18th and uh, 19th centuries. So I'm not very good at math, but she dies in the mid-17th century. And I'm of the opinion that she became a saint within the last few decades. So um, is that how long the uh, application process takes? (laughs) you got to... A three hundred year minimum before you can, you know, get the paperwork through the red tape and the bureaucracy. No, no, it, it's really uh, you get lost with, yeah. with that other My document. Got lost somewhere. Well, I, no, I mean, I think it's uh, Mohawk Catholics and a number of priests start generating a petition to the Vatican to make her a saint, and it takes hundreds of years, and eventually, <laughs> well, so yeah, so it takes about it. It, it does start to take a hundred. It, it starts to take a hundred years. Um, First, there are a number of Jesuits who are canonized, and then her petition is introduced. Uh, Pius Twelfth then says, you know what, this person is, uh, we're going to say this person is worthy of veneration. Um, actually, doing that convinced a number of Native American Catholics, uh, particularly among the Navajo, that they should join the U.S. Army um, and become the Code Talkers. So that actually had a, an impact. They were praying and on the day that they had stopped. So John Paul II. Paul I know that one. Yeah, yeah there we go. All these other popes never heard of him, but I know that one. So there's there's a there's a big effort to to gather all the evidence. And then Pope John Paul makes her a saint. Oh uh, well, no, almost. In order to become a canonized saint, you've got to have some kind of miracle sign from heaven. There's a, a young boy named Jacob Finkbonner. His ancestry is from the the, the Lumi Nation 
uh, up in northwest Washington. A little boy got a flesh-eating bacteria on his face. He was going to die. He was basically he was going to die. They basically pray to St. Cattery, and then it stops, and he's cured. And Cattery's cool, so let's make her a saint. So they basically, this is what makes her her saint. The interesting thing is that this this uh, young man's grandfather. I met I met him. I met this young man. One of his ancestors signed that petition to ask that the uh, Vatican make Saint Cattery uh, a saint. That's probably why they were praying to her. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so anyway, uh, so that happened, and then uh, yeah, in 2012, he had the first uh, Northern Native American woman. Correct. Be uh, made a saint of the Catholic Church, and doubtless just the first of many. I think in, in her own way, she is opening the door to recognizing there are a lot of men and women who should be recognized as uh, as saints who were indigenous people and you know, really love Jesus and should be an example for us today. Thanks so much, Peter. I've learned a, a lot from uh, what you were able to share and appreciate all your reporting and investigations and you've written numerous articles on her over the years so it's great did you have any other questions caleb oh i was just going to tell our listeners that if they would like to know more you probably won't find it anywhere else than where you just heard it (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm not going to regard myself as the the foremost authority here but i do think we will i mean honestly i i started to learn more about saint cattery because of you guys and uh because of this podcast I mean, when I first heard the story of St. Cattery Tecguitha, I didn't know much about her being a, a Mohawk person and what that culture was or anything like that. And I mean, we live here. I mean, here in upstate New York. I didn't even know that she went to a village that was Iroquois Catholic, you know, Haudenosaunee. None of that stuff. It just seemed kind of, I, it just didn't get it. It was only after listening to this podcast that I said, I got to investigate this because I knew other people had done had done this work, but it hadn't been popularly translated. This podcast had inspired me to go go deeper and to go up to uh, Ganawaga, you know, see the church where uh, her remains are buried, and to really actually do what you guys do, which is to say, look, I'm just going to be a storyteller here, and I'm just I want to s- stand, look at things from where these people would have stood, and where they may have had their blinders, where they may have had their insights, but just to look at what is going on from within their culture, from within their context and their times. And once I started to do that, Cattery came alive to me. Um, and I discovered people who had done done work on Cattery, on her story, uh, Jesuit historian who worked on her cause, uh, Henri Bouchard, you know, and he does a he does a great job as as far as he can, uh, but I, I really benefited also from the enormous perspectives of uh, of Darren Bonaparte, who's a Mohawk wonderful historian. Mohawk historian scholar uh, from uh, you know Aquasasne. And his book, The Repatriation of uh, Saint Cattery Tikkakwitha, I think is really important because she really does need to be understood as Mohawk, as within her times that's where I think whatever message that she has for us we'll be able to to really listen to. And I think especially with everything that's going on now with, uh, I wouldn't say revelations, because indigenous people have known about it for a long time, but you know, with the reckoning that is happening with the, the residential schools, uh, with papal apology, you know, here on uh, indigenous land uh, in, in Canada. I think it's important f- that we revisit these stories, but from the standpoint of people who were, who were there and at that, at that time. Thank you so much, Peter, for, uh, for joining us today. 
And we'd like to remind our listeners that you can still follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Feel free to send us an email to longhousepodcast.com. And what should they remember to do, Caleb? Andrew and I always appreciate a five-star review on iTunes or any other uh, platform that you use. And in doing so, you'll become an honorary member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. Please also feel free to reach out on Facebook or Twitter. Message us, comment on our different timelines and feeds. It's lovely to be, it's nice to have interactions and discussion as we all learn and grow in our quest to understand history better. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.